Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people, and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is Professor Irvin Laszlo, who I've known for many years. Irvin spent his childhood in Budapest and was a celebrated child prodigy on the piano with public appearances from the age of nine. He received a grand prize at the International Music Competition at Geneva, which meant he could leave Hungary and begin an international concert career, first in Europe and then in America. Shifting to the life of a philosopher and systems scientist, he's lectured at various universities in the US, including Yale and Princeton. He's the founder and president of both the Club of Budapest and the Laszlo Institute for New Paradigm Research. He's the author, co-author, or editor of over 100 books that have been published in a total of 25 languages. Irvin Laszlo has also written several hundred papers and articles in scientific journals and popular magazines, and he's a member of numerous scientific bodies, including the International Academy of Science, the World Academy of Arts and Science, the International Academy of Philosophy of Science, and the International Medici Academy. And he was elected a member of the Hungarian Academy of Science in 2010. Irvin was awarded the Sorbonne's highest degree, the Doctorat et Lettres et Sciences Humaines, in 1970, and has received honorary PhDs from the United States, Canada, Finland, and Hungary. He was the recipient of the Peace Prize of Japan, the Goy Award in 2001, of the International Mandia Peace Prize of Assisi in 2005, and of the Luxembourg World Peace Prize in 2017, and was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004 and 2005. Irvin, welcome to Imaginal Inspirations, and thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. David. You're wonderful, one of the most wonderful imaginal persons that I've known, and it's a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, that's very kind. The first question I usually ask my guests is a, a shaping moment involving your choice of work. Uh, but I think in your case, it involves at least two shaping moments, one musical and the other philosophical. So maybe you'd like to begin with the <clears throat> musical and then move on to the philosophical and scientific. I was thinking back on possible moments. I can't identify a single moment that would have that whole catalytic function of moving from one kind of a life path to another. It's a progression. Then there was a final movement which consolidated it. There was a progression. You see, if I think back how it all started, I was, as you mentioned, a concert pianist, a prodigy. That means I never attended school in a regular way. In fact, I, uh, I had no practically no formal schooling at all. Uh, I was always taken, taken as a, on a separate road, a bit outside. I wasn't encultured into anything. And then came the war, which was uh, a total upset. We just, and just managed to survive in 1944-45. And then I left when I was 15. I went to Geneva for the music competition, as you mentioned. So of a series of events that were shaking me always out, out of the ordinary. 
So I got into the habit of being outside, looking in, and asking myself, is that the way it really is? That's a bad habit. And that's a kind of a habit that leads to, to philosophy. But it, it's something that I pursued. I could never simply accept things just the way they were given to me. And when these things culminated in an experience, which was a kind of a stock-taking experience, it was a New Year's Eve. My first son, Christopher, was just then one year old. And uh, my wife, Marjorie, who is now, now called herself Carita, because she has both names, actually. And uh, we were in a vacation in, for, for a few days at Garmisch-Partenkirchen, the famous German Alps. And I took a stock. I took stock. I was, again, outside of the world, as it were, up a mountain peak, looking down at the, at the lit-up resort town, and I asked myself, it's midnight coming, a new, a new uh, year is starting. Could that be that a new phase in my life is also starting? So I asked myself, where am I? What am I doing? Is that what I want to continue doing? And surprisingly for a concert pianist, particularly one who was doing fairly well, I said, no. And that's not just what I want to do. I think I love music and I love performing, but I, that's not what all I want to do in life. So I said, what then? And you see, I always questioned things. And here the idea came to me that perhaps should look after this questioning. See if I start talking to people who are really into this, who are professors, who are published authors, and so on about talking about science and philosophy in those fields, who might have some answers. I said to myself, let's start by looking at the possibilities that the world of the senses is not the whole world that there is. Maybe there is something behind it. I found amazing experiences while I was playing the piano and, and playing together with others, especially playing for a public. It's uh, getting you out of the ordinary routine things into a different dimension of the world, it seemed. I said, is there also a deeper dimension in the world altogether? That's, is that all, not all there is what we all experience every day? So on that moment, I said to myself, and I also said to my wife, who thought I got a bit out of my mind, but a pianist can do kind of these ideas sometimes. I asked myself, what shall I do? Okay, seriously, start reading. Start attending university courses and so on. This was in the mid 1950s. I was already in my mid 20s. And uh, I never attended a course. I never took an exam in a course before, but now I started visiting courses, first in Munich and then, and then in New York. And that, at that moment, I decided to do that seriously. And that, I think, looking back, was the key moment when I decided to shift it around asking these questions, which later are turned out to be philosophical, scientific questions, for, for me were curi world curiosity questions. That was, in a way, my hobby, whereas music was my profession. The shift was to make music into the hobby and make this into the profession. That came a few years after that, when I, got an, when I published, already published my first book by, you know, by a set of surprising coincidences. 
But uh, that was out and it got into the hands of, uh, of the chairman of the Yale Philosophy de Department, John Schrader. And he asked me to come to, to Yale. And I said, well, that is a complete change. How can I be as a concert pianist, do anything in the philosophy department? But uh, John said, I've read your book and that's full of ideas. And I'd like you to develop these ideas. And there are many people at Yale who will be interested in developing it. So I went and that became in a way the second movement, the move then from being a, a hobby of thinkers to being a, sort of an academic kind of a thinker. Teaching courses was so funny, David. I started teaching courses even though I wasn't attending those, never myself. I didn't even know how, how exams are given, you know, uh, to kind of ask around. And I was always afraid of my students finding out that I'm that I not really thorough, have a thorough background in what I'm teaching. But I'm teaching those courses because I read the books and I thought I can talk about them. Anyway, this is in a capsule for it. Well, indeed. And I think what's so interesting is the, the influence of your not having had this formal schooling, which enabled you to question more deeply and, and really take your own path. Exactly, yes. And also to, to think independently. But in in this process, Irvin, did, did you have an influential mentor or mentors in your family or beyond your family to sort of help guide you on your way? Well, somebody who launched me on my re on my way was the elder brother of my mother, who lives in the same large apartment house in Budapest, who was an amateur philosopher. He would have liked to be a professional philosopher, but he didn't have the degrees for it at the time, but he devoted his life to that. He was actually a literary person and a musician. He had a, a string quartet that was regularly meeting and, and giving concerts. He was working together with my father at the, at the family enterprise, which was a shoe factory. But his love was philosophy, the German philosophers especially, the skeptical philosophers. He was a very skeptical person himself, always questioning, always asking, not trusting anything really except his own thinking, his own intuitions. So my uncle, Stephen, called Istvan in Hungary, uh, was, took, used to take me out on walks when I was, God knows, I was 12, 13, 14 years old. We went, we lived across from a park, from the city park in Budapest, and we went out for long walks. And he talked to me, and I was fascinated by the questions that he asked. He, I, a lot of it I didn't understand didn't bother, but I thought, well, there are these questions to be asked. I must say, when I left Hungary, when I was 15, and got to Geneva, to the music competition, and went on. I lived the life of a concert pianist until I was then about uh, 25, 26, when the other experience happened. In between, I forgot. I forgot about these interests, these questions, but they were brought back by always the best thing that can bring these new new phases of life into existence by a girlfriend in New York. A young a set of young people of this of whom this girl was one whom I almost married actually at the time. But a lovely, serious woman who asked similar questions and was very much deeply into Proust and Virginia Woolf and other persons like this, and got me on a path of trying to formulate my ideas in writing. I attended school at the New School for Social Research in New York, and I attended classes in creative writing. 
and I tried to express my ideas in fiction form. So there was this next phase in my life in which I tried to also put down in, in written form things that I thought about. But that was still didn't get me to the point which came later when I realized to my astonishment that what I'm writing could be of interest to somebody else as well. Mm. And that was by chance, I met a, a, a gentleman who turned out to be a publisher, an editor for a publishing house in Holland, Martinus Nyhoek, and he published my own notes, which at the same time I wrote only for myself and for my friends, my, my friends in New York primarily. So a series of events, and they they left left led me as as though by a thin line, a light motif, as they would say, yes. toward asking questions and toward formulating answers, and then it's the beginning of the idea of writing down for others. It's just the beginning of idea of communicating, or to be as in a slightly. Uh, exaggerated thing of teaching. I never thought of myself as a teacher. I just wrote for myself and I was happy if it was, if I could communicate it and it was of interest to others. And then were you, were you also continuing to read or not very much you know, during your time as a concert pianist or, or did you really get going into books at a slightly later stage? Well, when I decided, and this famous move in Kapartes Kassage, to, to be serious about my interests, I went to a bookstore and I asked, what are your books on philosophy? And they, they gave me one book, actually, they must not give me, I looked at the shelves and I, I, they showed me where the philosophy books are. And I picked one out, more or less at random, but it was a book by an Indian philosopher. I was always very sympathetic to, to the Indian thinking, you know, the most spiritual thinking. And he wrote a book which I think was called Related Multiplicity. It was a Whiteheadian book, and he quoted heavily Whitehead. I read this book. It was the first book in philosophy that I, that I actually read. Then I, then I saw I had better trace this further and, and go to the roots of it. And he quoted Whitehead, so I should read Whitehead. I went back, I, I read this day and night. I went back a couple of days later and I said, I want a book by Whitehead. And they came to the shelves and they gave me, put a book in my hand, it was called Process and Reality. Oh, wow, that's the real thing, isn't it? So I a young boy, a middle-aged, I was by that time, of course, about 30, not so young. But somebody who was, was absolutely new to this whole field was, was, I didn't realize what a pretentious, ambitious um, uh, idea this is to get into processing reality. But I didn't know any better, so I started on page one and I read through until page 350 or whatever it was. You know. And then became a Whiteadian. It made a tremendous impression on me. It was difficult to understand. I had to read through things several times. But I started thinking like that in Whiteheadian process terms. Nothing is, everything is flowing, everything is coming into being, everything is being by what it, how it relates to other things and the all things together bring forth every, any one thing. So all these ideas made a profound interest in me. I consider myself a Whiteheadian and to some extent I consider myself that still. But certainly it was a metaphysics, which was not the end station for my thinking, but it was a key element of trying to see things 
the world as a coherent whole that interacts and evolves. That is still my thinking today. Well, that's a very good starting point. Um, and it reminds me, I, I read uh, Whitehead's um, Process and Reality exactly 40 years ago in, in Leipzig when I was there. But I, I did a similar thing, Irvin, in 1974. I arrived in London and I went to Foyle's bookshop to see um, what sort of books I, I could find. And and two of the books I found were by were by Radhakrishnan, you know, who was a philosopher and president of mm. India. And one of them was an idealist view of life. And so I did rather the same thing as you. I just sat down and read it. And Radhakrishnan has, in fact, had a, a huge influence on my my thinking. And I, I admire his his career. And he's one of the most distinguished, or if not the most distinguished philosopher, Indian philosopher of the 20th century. So I love this, the serendipity of um, the books that um, are influential. Is there any other book or books you'd like to mention at this point, which were important um, in the development of your own thinking? Well, yes. Van Bertalanffy, particularly the biologist who went beyond the limits of this biology science and talked about systems, whether they are biological or social or physical or chemical systems or galactic systems, general systems. And this opened a new phase also in my thinking. I met Van Bertalanffy when I was at Yale for the semester and the imitation of, of, of John Schrader. And uh, I was impressed by his thinking and he, in turn, read some of my notes, and we started working together. He wrote then the preface, the introduction to my introduction to systems philosophy, a book that I was working on for at least five years nonstop, and it expresses the key my key ideas at the time. So also, I would say yes, systems thinking, and then Prigozhin's work, Ilya Prigozhin's work, you know, on, on putting these things into deeply scientific, acceptable scientific terms. So the importance of a coherent world of which we are a part, which evolves and in which we ourselves can evolve. These are, are then the series of books that I've read. I didn't read so many as you might, as I'm sure that you do. You do a normal, fantastic amount of, of, of reading. I know I'm following your writings about it. But I read, I read usually quite slowly, and I tried to digest it. And, and if I liked it, if it said something to me, then it became somehow part of me. Not all doing the fair thing that I should be doing or giving a full bibliographic reference. It just became me. And when I wrote something about my ideas, the traces of other people's ideas were implicit in them. Yes, sure. And was, was Bergson also an important figure for you, or, or rather less so? Yes, 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 evolution, a creative evolution. Absolutely, yes. This was part of the following up of the of the Bertalanffy ideas, you know, evolution yes. in all its forms. Yes, I, I, I was thinking I, that because I, I know from speaking to Elia Prigogine that uh, Bergson was an influence on his thinking and, and also on Rupert Sheldrake's. When, when Rupert was at Cambridge, he read Matter and Memory and it completely changed his view of reality. And so it, it, I've had a, various conversations with him about that. Mm -hmm. And then, um, Irvin, how did, you, how did you come across and formulate your idea of the Akashic field? I think it was a chance remark. I think it was a chance remark. 
probably by a spiritual person, it may well have been an Indian, who said that what you are, what I'm talking about, he said to me, what you are talking about, he said to me, is really the Akasha, this other dimension, which the Indians call the Akasha. I said, oh, really? I was talking Akasha. And when I talk about the field, was that the Akashic field? So I woke up to this idea after I formulated the main principles, the idea that what I'm talking about has really been documented, has been part of India, in, intuition. And this was also the beginning of a, a deeper relationship with Indian philosophy. You mentioned, you mentioned Radha, Radha Krishna. I, to this day, I have a very strong sense of, of my doing, thinking along the lines of the Indians. And that uh, leads me to mention, <clears throat> I think that I was very pleased to, to, to know about, to receive. And just a few weeks ago, you mentioned, uh, just now, of course, uh, you mentioned about my uh, honorary de degrees, which are a compliment, the fact that I didn't have until much, much later, regular degree. I got an, uh, the fifth honorary degree was from India, which I just got a few weeks ago. And that gives me a particular pleasure because that means that the Indians feel the same way that I do, that I feel very related to them. And it seems that they're also relating to, to my ideas. So this was a, a very a source of great satisfaction to me. I think that the, the roots of these of these ideas go back, go back to into thousands of years, to, to the Ayurvedic traditions, to the to the Vedas and so on. These are all I feel are really implications and explications of deep truths, way, way beyond the level of our senses. And I think the the Indians were were really investigating, you know, deeply investigating consciousness, you know, way before it was fashionable to do so in the West. Yes, indeed, indeed. But coming from music, in my case, consciousness was so obviously in the forefront. But what I was doing was not simply physical exercise. I'm moving my fingers, yes, and I'm looking at notes and and, and studying things how to play them, but uh, what is happening to me was, was changing my consciousness, was altering it, was entering into another state. And I, because I was always interested in things I didn't understand. That's why I understood it already, then why bother with it? But I was always interested in things that I wanted to know more about. And one of the things that I wanted to know more about, about what happens when you enter all the states of consciousness? And then he came across the, the writings of Stanislav Grof, among others, who then became a good friend. Transpersonal psychology, that he called. You know. And that is very much going into depths. Then discovering quantum physics, where the depths is really a, a full pre-surface pre dimension, the implicate order which was there before the explicate order, the explicate order grows out of that. All of these are ideas that come together and say that what I am is really a very conscious agent, an agent of, of consciousness in the world, not somebody who, who has the pretension of generating consciousness in the brain, but somebody who is trying to use the brain as a decoder of consciousness, which is the, the more ultimate, the deeper level of reality. 
Indeed. And, and when you're experiencing music, and obviously you experience it differently as a player to just listening to it, what are the pieces that strike you as most sublime um, that you've played yourself? Well, I would call what musicians call, and I, I call also because philosophers and scientists call it that again, it's harmony, harmony, which can express as coherence, which comes to the fore as the search of one part for another, or, or pulling together or becoming one, the oneness. No, that's, that's the element. Not being separate. And I read sort of a saying by, by, by Einstein, gave me very deep respect for him, saying that separateness is an illusion, he said. That in the real world, there's nothing is separate from any other thing. That was Whitehead. That's coming through in physics, in quantum physics, more, more, now more than ever. And that's a confirmation of what I intuited as a musician, of becoming, at least for a moment, becoming one with other people around me losing my physical body, my physical identity. In fact, while we say that, let me just add this, you are interesting on a turning point. One turning point in my life was precisely my losing my sense of physical being to such an extent that when I was actually playing on the, on the concert stage, play, playing a, a sonata by Beethoven, I, I forgot where I am at this at playing around the, on that piece because at the beginning of the second movement comes back at the end of the second movement and and of all of a sudden when I woke up as it were by playing it I didn't I didn't know to my great uh, shock am I playing it now for the first time in the beginning of the movement or, or am I playing it for the second time at the end of the movement and I said my gosh I can't go on like this if you're if you're a pianist, you have to think about about your music. And if you're a philosopher, you have to just devote yourself to that, and you can't take on all this engagement. That's when I decided to go to Yale and to leave my pianist career. When I got this shock, it was a it was a real shock experience. Which yes, that, it certainly put you on the spot. And um, do you, do you have a favorite uh, piano concerto um, that that you've played? And um, obviously, with with orchestras, you know, I I love these the uh, simple, harmonious, logical music. That means Mozart. That means Schubert. That means the piano. Piano. The earlier works of of, of Beethoven. Asking my favorite piece, if I would be asked, I would say the A major concerto of Mozart and the C major concerto of Beethoven. When you are playing with with, a, with an orchestra. But you're not separate from the orchestra. It all goes together. It's all very logical. And it all reinforces each other. And it's all simple. Simple. I don't think the world is, is complicated. It's complex, yes, but it's not complicated. Ultimately, if we find it complicated, we just haven't understood it. The world is coherent, and coherence is simple. It's being one. Nothing can be simpler than being one. No, in, indeed, Irvin. And I think, you know, just looking at the, the future of culture, which we're both engaged in with uh, the book that we're editing and the many books that you've written on the topic, I think one of the things we agree on um, is that we need to prioritize the heart and prioritize love in a much to a much greater extent than we have in our current context and culture. Would you like to comment on that? Well, it's another 
great satisfaction that there is in the investigation of the physics and physiology of the heart. It comes through that the heart is not a simple pump of, of, of the blood flow to the, through the veins, to the blood, to the brain. The heart actually has its own perceptions and, and receives information and acts on it, uh, radiates information. Probably its radiation field is thousands of times stronger than that of the brain. So all the work at the Heart Math Institute, among others, confirms that indeed the heart is a mysterious organ. Organ, I now think of it as an organ of life, as a life principle itself. It starts beating. Why it starts beating? What makes it start beating in the in in the fetus, for example, at the, the very beginning? All of a sudden, it starts. It's there, and life starts when when the blood beats, and it continues as long as the heart beats. So I think it's it's a cosmic principle that comes to manifestation in life in the living organism, and following its guidance, it might be a deep guidance. That's something that the Indians, as you have mentioned, uh, Krishna and and the great Indian philosopher Aurobindo as well, have followed that the heart is indeed a, a leading organ, which we are only now becoming to understand that is really that. It's not just a metaphor. Metaphors are important, but this is more than a metaphor. It is true that our heart is the principle of the evolutionary impulse in us. That would be my formulation these days. Yes, and 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 also we we need as a culture to, to rebalance the emphasis between head and heart, or as Ian McGilchrist put it, between left and right hemisphere, because at the moment. Um, there is we're really overbalanced towards the masculine, towards logical thinking, and we need to balance that. I think with with intuition and and uh, a more mystical viewpoint. Yeah, absolutely, yes. I'm trying to contribute to that. Not for me, it's not surprising because the playing music and get entering into that dimension is to entering into the same dimension as the perceptions of the heart. It's not the brain. I could even forget, as I mentioned a moment ago, I could even mention my physical presence while playing, which gave me the shock. But uh, certainly the heart is in the same dimension where creativity is and where music and where our art is and the deeper layers of culture. Poetry, in your case, for example, as, as, a, as a respected, and to, my mind, to my mind, admired and appreciated poet as you are. I, I appreciate what you can do on those things. And that's surely you are following your intuitions, you're following your heart more than following a, a calculated attempt through the brain. No, very much so. Uh, and that's the aesthetic experience in general. And then do you have any favorite proverbs or quotes that you'd like to share with our listeners? I suppose that I, there are many that's very influential in my life. And the one I keep coming back to when I talk to people about the need to change, the need to evolve, they keep coming back to Gandhi. There so many great sayings among them. His famous saying of be the change that you want to see in the world. I'm very much aware that a true communication, a true artist doesn't make other people feel something. He or she feels it, is that thing, and then it communicates it. Also, like Ne Schweitzer, who said there are only three ways of 
changing the world. The first is through example, the second is through example, and the third, you've guessed it, is through example. <laughs> being, being the change. You know, I noticed uh, in, in my, already in my musician days that musicians, especially then conductors, who interpret a piece of music, they don't do it by instructing, instructing the musicians or, or the co-musicians or, 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 or partners. They start living the music and, it, and it's contagious. It carries forward. I was aware at the time of Herbert von Karajan who was conducting his closed eyes. He didn't look at people and say, come a little bit stronger here now and the diminuendo over there. No, he was simply living it. And a great orchestra that the Vienna and the Berlin orchestras and the others that he was dealt with could understand that, could feel that, could themselves become that. There's the big difference. I see Collingwood, the philosopher, talked about this difference between the, the artist and, and, the, and, and, and the medical doctor. Doctors who prescribe things and make other people do things or feel things or be things, and the artist who is that thing and then let's the others participate in that feeling, in that being. Yeah, that's a wonderful insight. And you, you had a saying about the difference between old professor and a young professor. Well, you asked me, David, about sayings that were influential and are influential in my life. A young professor, and I was in that category for a, for a long time, teaches more than he knows. There are all kinds of things that are pretends to know and has to come forth that doesn't really understand yet. The one who is a more mature professor teaches everything that he knows. But the really mature, ripe thinking professor teaches what's good for the student. And that's not all that he knows. But what's good for the student is what really counts. Wonderful. I love it. And my final question is, is there any advice from where you are now that you give to your younger self? Oh, gosh. I, I was pretentious. And my, maybe it was a good thing. I mean, I imagined that I can tackle questions that are still open questions, that I could look after. It. I was sure that not everything that can be known is already known. It's very pretentious for a young man. I thought uh, some, I could teach philosophy uh, with some ideas, some sense of um, coming across ideas that others have not come across yet, or certainly didn't communicate to me. Very pretentious. It's bold, courageous, if you like. It's extraordinary or exaggerated, perhaps. But I lived like that. I was not part of any established group, whether musical group or, or other groups. I had friends, but I was not encultured, as I mentioned earlier, I was not encultured into any given set of cultures or, or, or expression of cultures. And so I could always ask these things. And I asked things that I wanted to ask, which in retrospect is, is, is really extremely bold and aspirational on the part of a young person. Well, it's that boldness and curiosity and confidence that's made you who you are, Irvin. And so uh, I think it'd be good advice to give yourself, a, you know, be as confident as you were and look at the result. So thank you so much for joining me on Imaginal Inspirations. Wonderful, David. You, you are continued to be also an inspiration for me, and I enjoy our, our contact and our work together.
Thank you. Thanks so much. And let's end with a recording of you, Irvin Laszlo, playing Chopin's Nocturne Opus 27, number two in D flat major on your piano at your home in Tuscany.